Good morning. It's good to be with you, Grace Church. Um, brothers and sisters in the Lord, thankful to have this opportunity before you. Um, as I thought about this, I, my mind goes back to something I'm familiar with from high school and college, and that's, that's hockey. I know it's a little bit weird, but just bear with me. Um, so I played hockey in, in high school and in roller hockey in college. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And if you don't know, hockey has lines on offense. And so you have a starting line, a second line, and usually the most skilled players go first in the first line. Uh, if you want a goal, you put them out there. Uh, second scoring line is, is pretty good as well. Then there's sometimes a third line. It's kind of the bruiser line, the checking line. Uh, you can guess which line I was a part of. Um, but I was thinking about those who are teaching or preaching from this sermon series on what is the church. And I would put line one as our pastors, right? You got Daryl, probably the center, Nick and Kip on the wings. If you want a sermon, you're going to go to those guys. And not to sell the other guys short, they're probably on scoring line two with Todd at the center. You got Paul and Wes, right? It's a dynamic picture, right? It's really enjoyable. And then there's the third line. So in many ways, I feel like I'm the goon squad up here, right? Um, all physical, no mental. Um, I'm glad you're laughing, because that's helping me. Um, but in all sincerity, I, I want to welcome you to the prison of my mind. <laughs> um, that, that's how I perceive things at times. I, it's exactly what Kip preached from last week on the body of Christ, right? We can sometimes overthink our giftings, right? And we shouldn't do that, or we can downplay them. And I struggle with that. That's something I struggle with. And I'm up here today, uh, primarily because Pastor Worley sent me a text and said, would you consider this? Um, but that is a father to me in the church. Uh, I'm up here today because of the other elders who are my brothers who have said, you should do this. Or the countless text messages and emails I've received this week from beloved people in this body, family members, earthly family members, and spiritual ones. Um, and so that's something I want to convey today, that we need the body. We need the household of God, the family of God. And hopefully we'll be able to, to head that direction this morning. So to begin, um, I want to just share with you that we're going to take a survey approach and rather than kind of dive deep into one text. So we're going to probably skim some of these texts at a high level, like a 50,000-foot level. So hopefully that's, that's acceptable and, and you can track with me as we go through these different passages. So I want to first read from the passages this morning, uh, specifically just the New Testament ones. I'm not sure if those pop up or not on the screen, but you can see in your bulletin the text I'll be leading you in. So Ephesians chapter 2 is the first text we're going to read from. If you want to turn there and track along, verse 11 to 22, we're going to then hop to 1 Timothy and then to Hebrews. It's quite, quite, a, quite a survey, but um, I think it will be for our benefit. So let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to, the, to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 15, and then 5, 1 to 2. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how, how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a, fa a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 3 to 6 and 12 to 14. If you're keeping up, bravo, good work. Hebrews chapter 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of, the, of a house, has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful for God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as, as, long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, um, and we need your help. We need your help to understand this text or the various passages we're reading. We need your spirit to go forth and enlighten our eyes and open our ears, soften our hearts, to see the beauty of the household of God. Father, I pray that if we encounter a text that is challenging or difficult or awkward, that we would lean into that. We would ask for help to apply it to our lives, to live it out. Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus to be the head of the house, to pay for the house with his own blood, that, you, that he brought us to you, that we are one because of Christ. So, Father, speak to us this morning. We pray in the name of your sweet son, Jesus. Amen. So to start, I want to start with a question to you all. What is your perspective of church? How, how does church factor into your approach every week? What category do you assign or weight do you give church? Is it of significance? Is it, is it to do on your list? Is your church attendance an obligation? Well, as we move through this study this morning, I want to challenge you to ponder that question. And we're going to come back to it, 
but as we go through these different passages, hopefully there'll be an answer there as to the weight of how we're to view church. I know my, in my own life, that's changed over the years, and that's, I've been here for 20, 24 years I've been at this church, um, and I've been on a progressive path, if you will. Well, our specific topic this morning is focused on the household of God in the series, What is the Church? Pastor Worley um, was able to preach two weeks ago on the people of God. Kip last week preached on the body of Christ, and this week we're focused on the household of God. And as I studied the topic for this morning, I became increasingly encouraged by the events and happenings in my own life over time. And and so my prayer for you this morning is that this study, this message, would be an encouragement to you as well as you ponder the weight and the value of the household of God in your life. Which brings us to another question. What is a household? That's what we need to talk about this morning. What is a household? And I think in our culture, this can be a difficult topic to address to some degree. The difficulty here is that the concept of household, of what it is, and I think our culture has tried to change it. That We've tried to include more things that are considered family. Merriam-Webster would define household as the following, those who dwell under the same roof and compose a family. Also, a social unit composed of those dwelling, living together in the same dwelling. Some degree I agree, and some degree I disagree with that, with that definition. I think something else we need to consider as the text we're reading from, right? Consider the concept of household back in the New Testament nearly 2,000 years ago. What was that perspective? Well, back then, family was the focus of culture and community. Family was essential for life and survival. You needed it, right? In agrarian society, you needed everybody to work for the family, to gather food, to work together in unison. The focus was on we and not me. I think our culture has that flipped, right? It's mostly on me and not on my family. They also operated with an honor-shame type culture where we valued the perspective people had of our family name, of the collaborative. I think we've lost that today in our culture, so have that in mind today. I think ultimately, though, we to understand this concept better, let's, let's look to the scripture to help divine this. So we need to look back into the origins where we first see this idea of household within the scriptures. And so I want to establish a base or a cornerstone for us to anchor properly the concept of household. Therefore, I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, another passage we, we're going to read this morning. So here we're going to see the concept of household being defined and commanded by the Lord pre-fall, before sin entered the world. Let that sink in for a moment. The concept of households, families, was established in purpose for us since our inception as people. And we could even say the concept of family is eternal because we have a father, a son, and the Holy Spirit, right? So one point to stress, uh, and I wanted you to take note, is that this reference in, in Genesis 2 is going to come with us in our New Testament passages. So maybe put a, put a piece of paper there, or I don't know how you do it on your, your smartphone, but um, have your finger there. But we're going to come back to Genesis 2 in a bit, but, so we'll take that with us. And one final point I want to convey this morning is I'm probably going to use the word household and family interchangeably because I believe I can. So um, just a side note there. So in Genesis 2, let's, let's turn there, and I'm going to set the stage for you. If we've read Genesis up to this point, a lengthy two chapters, we would have seen God declare six days of goodness in his creation with the creation of man being very good, yet with one exception. 
it was not good that man should be alone. Therefore, as we arrive in Genesis 2, we see God has just created Eve. She has formed him out of Adam. So let me read to you verses 23 and 25 from Genesis 2. Then the man, Adam, said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Well, a few thoughts I have in this reference to this passage. They're not exhaustive by any means, and there's much that I'm going to be missing. But first, we do not see the word household mentioned or referenced anywhere in the text. But it is implied, clearly. A man and woman, when married, leave their prior family or household they are a part of to some degree. They leave their prior family, and they do this at the command of the Lord. Second, they become one flesh. They are unified or ought to be unified. And there's a common trajectory between them, or a common command, right? Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply. And only these two, in this context, are to do that together. Third, as they become one flesh, they become family to each other. They are to hold fast to each other. Notice the text says that the man is to leave, because this is a command directed at the man first. It is implied that the woman also needs to leave, or else... The imperative is pretty silly. Maybe there's some families like that, but um, we need to leave and cleave together. But why is this important? Well, because this is a clear need for a head of the household. I believe there's, there's a stewardship given to the man in this situation. So, in summary, what do we see? We see one man, one woman, leaving their prior families, becoming one united as one flesh and establishing their own family, all under the command of the Lord. This is what a household ought to be. The question then is, what does this have to do with the church, the household of God? Well, I think it has much to do with the church and the household. And so we're going to take a look at that in the New Testament. So let's flip back over to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to focus to start on verse 19. So Ephesians 2, in verse 19, says this. So then you are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We are no longer strangers and aliens. These words describe our state before we knew Christ. Apart from God, we were distant, unknown, with no intimacy with him, no closeness, In fact, it says in verse 12, if you look in chapter 2, Paul unpacks this even deeper. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Now, Paul here is describing Gentiles. He's describing unbelievers. And their outlook seems bleak and hopeless. Just like Ephesians 2.1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. If you are not in Christ this morning, this is your position and this is your state. You are far off. You are distant from God. And you are certainly not a part of the family of God. Thankfully, this is not the state God has left us in. Notice the transition in verse 13 here. It's similar to a transition in Ephesians 2.4. 
right, which is extremely profound, but God being rich in mercy. Here we see in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Our separation, the chasm that separated us from the Holy God has been spanned. The blood of Christ has not only covered and atoned for our sin, making peace with God, with the Father. It has not only saved us from the wrath of the Almighty God, the blood of Christ has brought us near. Repentance and forgiveness of sins are a, are a wonderful, unmerited gift that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ has given to us. However, Jesus did not just only die to grant forgiveness. He also brought us near to him and to the Father, into his house. He pardoned us of our sins through his death and resurrection. He gives newness of life, hope for eternity. But Jesus doesn't save a people and just leave them dwelling on earth. He's not an indifferent God to us. In fact, Colossians 1 tells us this, that he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. For all eternity past until the cross, God has longed to be a God who dwells with his people. This is a repeated theme throughout the Old Testament. So what does that mean? Well, the text says, you once were far off, aliens and strangers. You were unknown, but now you have been brought near. You are known. And not just known, you are loved. My mind kept going to Isaiah chapter 43, and I don't know if you're familiar with that text, but I love the part where it says, I have called you by name. You are mine. This is not only good news. This is great news. It's not just a proximity. It's not, it's not just him kind of, kind of bringing us near. No, we're brought into his home, into his household. We are his family. Paul then directs our attention to another point, house united. If we can proceed on, um, he directs our attention toward the unity that is brought a oneness similar to that if you paid attention to Genesis 2 that we just read from. But that was between a man and a woman. But verses 14 to 18 appear to be describing something differently. So not only has Jesus brought us near, we are collectively together in Christ, no matter who you are. Um, but what does it mean? In the text, he has, he has unified us together. He has brought us together. And so in the text, he's talking between Jew and Gentile, a people group that couldn't be further apart. Modern day context, we could say Jew and Palestinian, right? Uh, think of other scenarios that we have in our own country. Could be racial tensions, but it's, it's a people group that are at conflict with one another. And yet God brings them together and unifies them. So it doesn't matter then what ethnicity you are, what language you speak, what culture you prefer, or Kip mentioned last week, what sports team you like, Sox or Cubs? He told me, by the way, the right answer. So uh, you see here, oh, there he is, all right. But for me, I would say the greatest enmity I have in my life is in football, and it happens to be with the Bears and Packers. I say this in jest, but think for a moment of your own life. And I'm gonna use these words purposely. What trivial annoyances have caused separation in your life? What insignificant disagreements have you had that have caused you to burn bridges? Were they your preferences? Maybe they were politics. Unkind words? Hurt feelings are one thing, I understand, but 
What's the weight of what's causing us separation? What is so weighty that has caused division and disunity in your own life? Paul says this, the wall of hostility has been broken. It doesn't matter. We are all one in Christ. Consider for a moment our own human history, how badly we mess up families. In fact, you may come from a difficult, broken family. You may be fatherless or motherless. You may be without, you may have lost a sibling or maybe lost a child. Or maybe just family is not a, <clears throat> not a wonderful place to be. We only have to look at Genesis 4 to see this sadness on display. The very first two brothers, one killed the other. But in Christ, he has not only reconciled us to himself, he has reconciled us to each other. We are one in Christ. This is good news. Well, Paul goes on to unpack more what the, head of the, what the household of God looks like. In verse 20, <clears throat> excuse me, Paul says this, We are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. I don't want to get too far down the path of that verse because I know it's going to go into temple language, and I know Wes is going to be preaching from that. But the emphasis this morning is on Christ being the cornerstone, the measure by which we align ourselves. If you ask any builder, or especially during the, fir the first century here, a cornerstone was the key element to, to any structure. Jesus is the right angle. He's the level. He's the anchor of the household. Or we could say, as Kip mentioned last week, Jesus is the head of the body. He's also the head of the church. He's the head of the household. We look to him. Just as we saw in Genesis, we see that here in Ephesians 2 and carrying into Ephesians 5, the language of, a, of marriage, a new family unit or household. And as Paul says in Ephesians 5, it refers to Christ and the church. And so in order to properly be unified, we need to submit to the head. We need to look to him. Are we submitting to the head of the household? Are we listening to his word and obeying his commands? His words are essential because they guide and direct us to how we ought to act, which happens to bring us to our second text this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'll give you a minute to turn there if you want. This is an aside note. If you want a deeper study in 1 Timothy, come to Kurdos, because that's what's going on right now. Um, we heard from Jeff Sosowski this morning, and it, it was a, a rich time in the Word. But 1 Timothy chapter 3, and verses 14 to 15, let me give you a little background of 1 Timothy here. Paul is writing to Timothy, stressing to him what the church ought to look like. In fact, in these two verses of 14 and 15, um, in chapter 3, we see Paul say exactly this sentiment. I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. The question that we must ask from the text is, what are these things? There are many. <laughs> we could spend a long time. So come to Kurdos, right? Um, we came back, so if we look back in the first few chapters and see Paul is instructing Timothy on staying faithful to sound doctrine right away, to be a people of prayer, he provides qualifications for overseers and deacons, specifically how these men ought to act. Afterward, there are many instructions on also pertaining to behavior. However, we're going to jump ahead to two simple verses in chapter 5. I love these verses. They're really sweet. It says this, 
in verses 1 and 2, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Hopefully the text is straightforward to, uh, for us, but for the sake of clarity, I'll try to be clear. Paul's instructing Timothy, the church, our church, on how we are to treat and see each other, how we're to relate to one another, and it is weighty. Paul is not being flippant with his vocabulary here, and his instructions are clear. Because of the blood of Christ, we are brought near to the Father and the Son and to each other. And so we should treat each other differently. Paul means what he says, and this is not, not just unique to 1 Timothy 5. In fact, familial language like this is throughout the New Testament. Consider how Paul begins this letter. He says, To Timothy, meet my true child in the faith. In the book of Philemon, Todd preached a few weeks ago. In that book, it says, Aphia is his sister, Onesimus is his child, whose father Paul became in his imprisonment, and Philemon is cited as Paul's brother, none of which are earthly brothers and sisters. This is spiritual. Titus is Paul's true child in common faith. Pastoral epistles are addressing the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, the end of Romans in verse chapter 16, we read Paul lovingly addresses several people, one specifically the mother of Rufus, which Paul says has been a mother to me as well. This is not unique only to Paul. In the letter of James, the brother of Jesus, he writes with a similar affection. In fact, the apostle who stresses the mighty power of the tongue, right, that compares it to a rudder of a ship or a bit in the mouth of a horse or a spark that starts a forest fire, the weight of words is significant to James. What does he say? Fourteen times he calls the reader beloved brothers and sisters. What is the conclusion? Well, words matter. How we speak matters. It holds weight. It's significant. What Paul is doing in 1 Timothy 5 is instructing believers in Jesus of an eternal truth. The family of God is an eternal truth. Right? We will be forever brothers and sisters in Christ, co-heirs with Christ. You're not saved to be by yourself. Pastor really mentioned this in, in, his, in, the, in, the, in the welcome this morning. You are saved into a family, a household. The question is, does this eternal truth impact our present life today? James, James says it should. Paul says it should. In fact, looking back in Romans chapter 8, if we've received the spirit of life, what is our identity? Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you do not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We are heirs with Christ. Let that sink in for a moment. Co-heirs. We can call God the Father, Abba. Jesus says this too. Matthew 12, a crowd comes to him and says, hey, your mom and your brothers are outside looking for you. He turns and responds, but he looks at his disciples. Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my, my brother and sister and mother. This is a paradigm shift. <laughs> Something new is happening. This is a new household that is being established by Christ. So a question we should ask is, 
Why is treating each other so important? Why is being a part of God's house so helpful? Well, first and foremost, you have already heard one of those, one, one thing, because it's true, it's an eternal truth, and so we should live into that, walk into that. Second, because we need it. Consider for a moment a brand new believer in Christ. No matter if you're 10 or 50 or older, if you're new in the faith, you need help. You need instruction. Think of some of the questions that we could ask. What, what are helpful practices for a Christian? How should a Christian think through different life challenges? What impact will professing their faith in Christ have on their own life and the people around them? These new believers are children in the faith. They need parents in the faith. As believers, we need each other. We need parents in the faith. We need brothers, sisters in the faith. We need grandparents in the faith. Consider for a moment our dear brother who passed last year, Elmer Rue, right? A grandfather of earthly children here. And yet, with the Cubbies, he had multiple grandchildren, right? He lived into that. That was his perspective. In fact, I was ch chatting with Charlie Bell last, I think before ABF last week, and he made a mention to me about his own small group, right, the back nine, and how he longs for these men, these older men, I don't know why I'm focusing on grandparents this morning, but just bear with me. Um, he longs for these older men to lean into this more, right, to be a part of the body. They are, but how can they be grandfathers to some of these younger men in our church? How can you older ladies be grandmothers to some of these women in the church or parents to the, them in the church? I think of a grandfather of our church. I'm gonna, I asked him if I could point him out. I'm going to point on Todd Walker this morning. Um, I don't have an earthly grandfather anymore, but in many ways, I'm thankful he fills that void. Every time he comes to the pulpit up here, we know we're going to get pointed to Christ, and we're also going to get some whimsical story. I don't always understand them. I don't, I don't know if he does either, but I mean that in jest, Todd. I, I, I so value his personal life experience. I need to hear that, right? I, I can't, I'm not by myself. I need to hear his life experience, your life experience. We need each other. Families are to bear each other's burdens. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep as family. Families are to be contrary to Cain's opinion in Genesis 4. We are to be our brother's keeper. We should know. How are we doing? Younger men who need, I'm not younger anymore, but younger men need older men. Older need younger. Weak need strong. Strong need weak. Men need brothers. Women need sisters. To me, this very much addresses Genesis 2 again in the similar way that there is a knowledge between a husband and a wife of an intimacy because it's family and their kids. We need that intimacy. We need that transparency amongst us here. Well, how are we doing at this, Grace Church? I think in many ways, the Lord has blessed us and we're doing well. And let me give you some examples that I, I, wanna, I love to share. I was love thinking of these. The first one being, I don't know if you've ever been to a baby shower or bridal shower. I have many times, not invited. So oftentimes my wife hosts these. And so I'm usually the, the, I don't know, the chauffeur or the parking guy, right, out in my front lawn. There can be 40 cars that show up to these events. And I love it because my neighbor came over one day and he goes, what is going on over there? 
I go, well, it's a baby shower. He goes, what? For who? I said, uh, it's someone from our church, you know. Do you guys do this all the time? Yeah, it happens pretty much all the time. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, that is amazing, right? I think we're doing well there. And what I found so sweet, baby showers and bridal showers. This is, this is the household being established, right? We're celebrating that. We're living into that command. What about meals being prepared? I know we've been recipients of meals at times. It is awesome to see the call go out and, the, and it being answered very quickly. You guys are doing a great job. Praise the Lord, right? What about people needing to be moved? I know there's two brothers in the congregation that moved over the last year, and I think both of them have said at different times, did you have enough people? We had more than enough people. I remember, I won't point out Mark Weinsma, but he even, I think he had to find work for the guys that showed up to his house. There was that many people. That's awesome, right? What about, I don't know if we've done this in a while, but, and maybe we should, we should pray for this, but there have been families that have adopted sweet little boys and girls from the world here, and when they come home, have you ever been a part of that reception where the streets are lined in that neighborhood? It is awesome. That's a celebration. We are loving each other well because of the grace of God. In fact, the other night at an elder meeting, we had um, a member come into our, our meeting to just to have a dialogue with, and it was sweet to hear Pastor Worley counsel this person. and Just remind him, yeah, there are seven guys in here, but this is family. This is the conversation a family has. I think of the testimony our visitors that hopefully, Lord willing, that will stay, um, but our visitors have, right? They receive, they're received well. They're cared for well. But what are some ways we can lean into this more? Let's think about that, right? Well, here's one way, and we're going to jump to the next text of Hebrews chapter 3. There's a lot here in Hebrews 3, and so we are, we are going to skim it. And so uh, if you're looking for more, um, maybe we can talk later, but we're not getting that this morning. Hebrews 3. Let me just jump right to verse 6. So this morning, we're gonna, so in verse 6, it says, We are in the church, the people of God are in his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So let's pause for a moment. Genesis 2, right? We just read Genesis 2. Let me read, read, read you that. A man shall leave his father and mother and do what? Hold fast to his wife. Back to Hebrews 3 again. We are in his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence. Do you see the link there? Do you see the connection? The same thought, the same command is there, right? As a husband needs to hold fast to his wife, we as a church need to cling and hold fast to our husband, Jesus. He is our confidence and our hope. Right? It's unavoidable, the, the connection here. The author of Hebrews is encouraging his readers, the church, us, to hold fast our confidence. What is our confidence and hope? I, I just gave it away. It's, Jesus. it's the Sunday school answer. It's Jesus, right? It's in Christ alone. He is our hope. We need to hold fast to Jesus. We also know, if we do, the reciprocation is true, right? Just as that command went both ways in Genesis 2, Jesus will hold us fast. Psalm 139.10 in the NIV says, Your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. He will not leave you as orphans. Do you see how that 
marries well with this topic of household. You have brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, all around you. You are not left as an orphan, and he's coming back. However, the question remains, what purpose? Why do we have to hold fast to him? The author of Hebrews goes on to speak of the nation of Israel here. He gives an example of them in the wilderness. Hopefully you recall this. We're not going to read it this morning, but in the wilderness, leaving Egypt, what did they do? They hardened their hearts, and they failed to enter God's rest. This is a gracious warning for us this morning that we need to hear. The purpose of holding fast is to help us fight against the deceitfulness of sin leading to hardened hearts. So how does the author tell us? What does that look like? What does is, what is holding fast look like for you and for me? Well, he goes on to say this, and I think it's in verse 12. He says, take care, brothers. He speaks of family again, another reference. He warns us of concerning evil, unbelieving hearts, which, like Israel, our hearts lead us to fall away from the living God. This is why we need to hold fast our confidence. Sin is around us everywhere, and our flesh longs to run after it. Thus, we need to cling to Christ. We are responsible for laboring unto Christ together. We are a participant, in fact, citing James again, faith without works is dead. We need to have some action here. God does not give us the gift of salvation for us to kick up our feet. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, if you are in Christ, the logical outflow of that truth is you longing to participate in his family, and specifically what the author of Hebrew mentions in verse 13, is through exhortation of one another. Exhortation is how we battle the deceitfulness of sin. This is what a household of God looks like. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. I don't know if people got that example or that reference. Um, Lone Ranger, never mind. Um, there's no isolated Christians. Right? I asked this of my kids the other night at the dinner table. I told my wife I wasn't going to reference them, but I am now. Um, I said, could there be a Christian that leaves, lives alone in the world? The answer is yes. Ought there be a Christian that lives alone in the world? The answer is no. <laughs> we need each other. Right? Exhortation is a part of that. Sunday mornings is not just about attending church together. It's not merely enjoying social aspects of body life, but it is leaning in caringly, lovingly, exhorting one another. Which leads us to ask the question, what is exhortation? Well, I'll, I'll provide you with my own definition this morning. I think it's this. Exhortation means to come alongside, to encourage, to challenge, to help, to confront. And it usually comes in the form of advice or counsel with love. We see this, I'm thinking of my small group, and Kate, we're sitting right here. We see this in, our, in, in Proverbs. We're studying Proverbs on Monday night. Where a father lovingly exhorts his son to listen to wisdom, right? We see it there. We see it in Matthew 18 when a brother lovingly confronts another brother who's in sin, making sure clearly to take the speck out of their eye. We see this when we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another, even this morning as we sang together. We're experiencing on a larger scale exhortation even now, Right? But there's an element here, and it's of transparency and vulnerability 
and involves the confession of sin to one another. This part of exhortation is personal in an intimate family level. And let me give you an example in my own life of what this has looked like. And I hope he doesn't mind me referencing him, but he, Pastor Nick has been up here before, so. Uh, a few years ago, Pastor Nick and I, I don't know if he knows I'm gonna talk about this, but we, we met together for a season um, for coffee in the mornings, and I think we were going through a book together on purity, and I remember him very clearly outlining our time together saying, hey, at the end, let's, let's confess sin one to another and make sure that the other brother preaches the gospel to the one who just confessed. Why is that so essential? That's, number one, it's exhortation. But we need to hear when we're in sin, when we're feeling shame and the weight of that and confess it, we need to hear what's true. We need to hear what's right. I need a brother in the trenches with me, right? It's like my hockey analogy in the beginning. My mind puts me down, and I need brothers to preach into my life what is true, what is orienting. But you, there's vulnerability there, right? We've got to lean into that. Well, I hope you... That gives us a little picture this morning of some elements of the household of God. And let me just give you a quick review. First, the household, I think, is, is mirrored after Genesis 2. The household of God can only be bought with the blood of Christ. It's a house united because of the blood of Christ with the Father, with the Son, and with each other. We have a head of the house, and that is Jesus, and we need to look to him. We are a family in this house, and so we should treat each other as such, as mother, father, brother, sister. And then we need to act like a family, exhorting one another. So the takeaways or the applications this morning, and hopefully they come up. I don't know if they do. Maybe, maybe the slides are. Anyway, I have three points of application this morning, three, three questions or challenges for us. The first one being this. Whose family are you in? I struggled with, I had in preparing this because my sermon ended up going pretty long, but um, so I didn't unpack this as nicely as I wanted to, but to make it simple, there's no way to sugarcoat this. You're either in the household of God or you are in the domain of darkness. There's no middle or third option here. Jesus himself, who spoke to the Jews, called them out and said, you are of your father, the devil. So you're either in the domain of darkness or you are in the kingdom of the beloved son. You're not, you can't, and you can, for sure there's no third option, right? You can trace this bifurcation or this dual house all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. If you look at the, the genealogies or the lineages, you have the line of Cain or the serpent, you have the line of Seth, the promise. And it comes up everywhere. If you, if you study scripture with this lens, it will pop up. So, so which house are you a part of? I think I could speak for the body of believers here, is we would long for you to be part of the household of God. But there's only one way, and that's through the blood of Christ. Question number two. If you are in the household of God, this is circling back to my first question, what is your perspective on the household of God? How do you view church, right? How do you think about it? Is this an obligation for you? Maybe you're far off. Maybe church has kind of burned you in the past, and you know you need to be here, but you're really not plugged in, right? Maybe you come from service and you, and you head out, and there could be some pain there. I'm not going to minimize that. 
But is this an obligation? Is this a duty? Or is church a delight? Are the people here, are they mere acquaintances or are they family? Let me give you a personal example in my life. 20 some odd years ago, um, the Lord saved me when I was in college. And he graciously brought me to Grace Church. And I knew at the time I needed to be baptized. So I attended a baptism class. And thankful I did. There was a gentleman who taught the class. His name was Mark MacArthur. And I still remember his words to me. He said this. He said, Lance, I love church. I love every aspect of church. I love the sermons. I love the Sunday school. I love the meals. I love the small groups. I love every element of it. And I can tell you, I could not resonate with that at the time. Shocker, right? I'm waiting for Kip to tackle me here in a minute. Good luck, Kip. I'm on the checking line, so. But I could not resonate with that. It it wasn't that I didn't know it to be true. I was a believer. I am a believer, praise the Lord. I was a believer in that I confessed Jesus as my Lord. I knew I was a sinner and I needed to be baptized, but my affections were not there. But 20 some odd years later, I can say that that's true. And it's because of the body of Christ and the work of the Spirit. The amount of people that poured into my life, whether intentionally or passively, with exhortation, I can't count them. There's so many. They they pop into mind here and there, and they are are family to me. And it, it took time. And so the reason I want to stress this to you is it's a spectrum, guys. There are infants in the faith, and we need to help them. There are, there are mature believers in the faith, and we need to look to them. We need each other. This is what Paul talks about in uh, the beginning of Ephesians, that he wants you to grow in the knowledge and wisdom of the Lord. You need to grow into it, and so your affections can be cultivated, right, through the work of the Spirit, through the preaching of his word, and through the body of Christ, the household of God. So, what is your perspective on church? Hopefully it's changed a little bit. I know for me it has, and I'm thankful for that. It's, what, it's one reason a couple of years ago, we, at work, we even we were considering an opportunity to transfer, and Michaela and I sat around the dinner table and we're like, we, we can't leave. <laughs> we can't leave our body here. We can't leave our family. It's too sweet. It's too wonderful. Well, this brings me to my third point. Who is in your life that you are exhorting? Or who is in your life that you're receiving exhortation from? I don't want to make you feel shame or guilt. And so if that's the result, lean into these questions, right? Read the negative of the command in Hebrews 3. If you don't exhort one another, what is the negative? You will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Be forewarned, brothers and sisters. That is, the, that is the word of the Lord. And so we need to lean into this. And so let's pray to that end, right? Go get coffee with someone. Go hang out with someone, right? Spend time with other believers. Um, a sweet family that used to go here, their phrase constantly was, more is caught than taught. Sometimes it's not verbal that's going to exhort you. Sometimes it's looking at someone and saying, wow, that's an example I want to follow after. Right? Let's look to that. Who are those people in your life? 
older believers, who are those people that need your exhortation? Don't be on the sidelines. We're, this is family here. We got to work together, right? We're the agrarian, cult, the agrarian family that needs to work together. We have to. So I leave you with that challenge this morning. And as I close, I want us to consider that the next step this morning is a family meal, right? We get, if we're in the household of God, we get to partake in it together. We get to remember together. Also exhortation, right? To remember the death and resurrection of our King Jesus. So let me pray, and then I'll allow uh, the men serving and the musicians to come back up. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to lean into your household, that we have the perception that we are family because it is true. Father, that you would spur us on to, to good works, to, to exhort one another, that we would help those around us, maybe those who are, who are not further along in the faith and those look to those who are further along in the faith. But Father, would, would you help us to keep all this in mind that no matter what we do, we do unto Christ for his glory. The blood of Christ has brought us near. And so let us celebrate that. Let us worship that. We pray this in the name of Jesus this morning. Amen.